Oh, how we celebrate and appreciate, Heavenly Father, how You have condescended to us. You have come to us in the form of revelation and made Yourself known to us. And Your Word has given us, Lord, metaphors of value to describe Your precious blood. All, all of them, Lord, we treasure, yet all we recognize fall infinitely short of communicating the preciousness of Jesus' blood. We cannot quite compare it to gold because it perishes and fades. We cannot compare it to any sum of earthly wealth because it so far exceeds it. Its power and rarity and beauty and resplendence, Lord, is not to be measured ultimately by earthly standards. And we just experience its great value with every day and every dawn of the power of Christ's blood to conform us to your image, to ransom our souls, to assure us of heaven and glory, and to quicken our steps in faithful obedience. We appreciate the value of your blood every day, even as it's impossible for us to plumb its depths. We're so thankful that we have another day to appreciate it all the more. And we're thankful for the perennial Sabbath glory promised to us in heaven, where we will appreciate it in fullness one day soon. I pray that today's message would quicken us, Lord, whet our appetite for glory, deepen our appreciation for the things of You, and bind us together with cords of Jesus' blood that cannot be broken. And it's in the name, the holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to open the Scriptures together again today. I pray each of us remember what a privilege that is and not take it for granted and not take it lightly. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. While you're turning there, I'll give you a brief description and introduction to this message. The title of today's sermon is A Titanium Plowshare. Titanium plowshare. The imagery is meant to invoke a strong tool, a tool that's effective and superior for the task at hand. Titanium being that metal, that special alloy of superior strength, whereas a steel or a cheap iron, something that was forged without the technology of these rare metals coming together and giving it its strength, might bend when it hits a stone and fallow soil. If you were to fit your plow with a titanium plowshare, it would be able to cut and to hack unimpaired by obstructions beneath the surface. I want to make the argument today that in 2 Corinthians, as Paul closes his book and as, we, as we've followed his train of thought now for some time in our communion Sunday series, as Paul closes his words to the Corinthian church, he has proved that the gospel, the simple, clear, unadulterated truth of Jesus Christ preached, which is foolishness to both the Jew and the Gentile unregenerate and unawakened to its power, that that gospel has been a titanium plowshare to till up the soil that was so fallow and hard that history has never seen its equal. I think Corinth is a prototype for what the gospel can do in a culture that's so steeped with evil and hardness of heart that it would be difficult for us to imagine anything penetrating and making its mark. 
Yet the Apostle Paul, with a, a band, a small band, just a handful, near as I can figure with my inferior math skills, less than one-tenth of one percent Christian in that city, nevertheless made an indelible mark for the kingdom of God in this town which exists to this day, and we're reading its record before us in Second Corinthians. Amazing thoughts indeed. The restoration and upbuilding of the church is Paul's closing aim in 2 Corinthians. And we'll read in a moment as he discloses, reiterates once again his purpose for writing. His purpose is to restore and to build up the church. History and scriptural context remind us of the exigencies of this culture which rendered Paul's words and their efficacious, their effectiveness, a gross improbability. But nevertheless, Paul's words did have an effect. Corinth provides the church for all time, our church and our time included, for, with an extreme test case, an example of the cultivating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to say, if Christianity can flourish here in Corinth, there is never, there has never and will never be a situation in history where the soil of man's hearts and society is so fallow that it can resist the titanium plowshare of the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read in 2 Corinthians 13, picking up here in Paul's closing remarks, verse 8. He says, reiterating his claim once again that he opened the first book with, that he would determine to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, In verse 8, by saying, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things, while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. And verse 11, final greetings. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Let's read the closing verse which is so powerful, it's certainly deserving of a sermon all to itself, which I'll attempt to do in the future. Verse 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And thus we have the last recorded words the church in Corinth, from an apostle that was very concerned about the spiritual health of the church under the conditions that were, they were experiencing in the culture around them. A heading for this message proceeds as follows. I think we can find in these verses I've read today three lessons in closing from Corinth. Three lessons that we can learn in these verses as Paul gives his last words to the church in Corinth. I'll give them to you briefly and then we'll expand. Number one, fallow ground 
demands sharp tools. Fallow ground demands sharp tools. Number two, the reformational sufficiency of Scripture. The reformational sufficiency of Scripture. And number three, unity is contingent, not prior. Unity is contingent, not prior. First of all, under fallow ground, demanding sharp tools. Reading again in 13.8, Paul makes this statement emphatically once again. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. As Paul sets up a stone pillar bookend at the close of his instructions to the Corinthians, he's been consistent all the way through from introducing his comments to them to closing his comments to them by emphasizing that the truth of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable. I'd like to remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As I've done some study of the culture, the history surrounding concurrent with these words of Paul, if he had just salted his speech some with sophist platitudes, with the wisdom and the lingo of the day, if he had just mixed in with his truth some of what their ears were itching to hear of the philosophers of their hour, Paul's church might have grown much more than it did. But this was not Paul's church. This was Jesus Christ's church in Corinth. By best estimates, we figure maybe 100 to 200 members, whereas the population of this city was 250,000 strong and likely growing at this time. In Corinth, there was a contingency of believers within the population of pagans that was less than one-tenth of one percent legitimately Christian. What if he had mixed in some of the wisdom of the philosophers? What if he had made a kind of syncretization with the ideas of the day? What if he had incorporated some of the cultural forms and sure compromised some of the gospel, but at least keep the basic message? Perhaps his church could have grown to 5 or to 10% of the population. It's very clear in this record that Paul was unwilling to do that. If anything, he was sharpening and strengthening the plowshare because, as point number one summarizes for us today, fallow ground demands sharp tools. Fallow ground demands sharp tools. This is a lesson we would do well to learn today. Men are hard to reach, they say. Their attention span is limited. 
we've joked at times, if we keep on shaping the way we preach and what we say to accommodate culture, we will soon be reducing sermons to 140 characters because Twitter shapes what the American mind can behold. But if we reduce to 140 characters the immeasurable depth of Scripture, we've done Jesus Christ and His glory no favors, and we haven't even penetrated, I would venture to say, the fallow ground that demands sharp tools, not dull tools, not culturally conditioned compromises, not dullness of hearing and things that would tickle the ear as advertisement slogans that would compromise things that Paul emphasized, stood on, and proclaimed, even if the church remained less than one-tenth of one percent of the population. It didn't matter. This is what mattered. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Paul was too afraid to find strength in anything else except the clear teaching of Christ's holy work. He knew that he would not get a foothold in the pagan world to advance the gospel any further, whether to Rome, to Spain, to the greater world, known world, unless this foothold was established not as a plateau of compromise, but as a firm toehold of truth, even as it was there on a mountain of paganism. Paul knew that if he stood true to what Christ had given him to say, his speech and his message, not with the plausible wisdom of man, but with the demonstration of the Spirit and power, he had the faith that that mountain of paganism could be thrown into the sea, if not in his lifetime, in the next And so as history unfolded, we find the glorious affirmation and the last laugh from the throne eternal as paganism was systematically dethroned in the West and Christianity began to spread and to grow. That handful of believers not much bigger than this church here were strong in their faith. They endured persecutions and beatings from both the Jews and the scorn, no doubt, of the greater culture around them, but they stood They stood firm, and generationally so. How fallow was the ground, you might ask? Well, there was a catalog of issues, of dysfunction, that Paul was addressing in both of these letters, and especially in the first one. Paul unfolds his words, his admonition, and his direct gospel application against such issues as division in the church, cases of morbid immorality, incest, Lawsuits where believers were taking their cases to pagan courts, thus doing the glory of God a disservice. Sexual immorality of every imaginable sort. Divorce and marriage were confusing ideas to these people, steeped in the wickedness and debauchery around them. There was the present distress, the reality of persecution hanging over their heads. Nero would soon assume the throne, and the church would suffer greatly at least physically, under his hand. There was idolatrous foods and feasting and practices. There was disorderly worship. There was disorderly homes. There was irreverent treatment of the sacraments and communion. Gifts were misused. People were self-aggrandizing. Ears were itching for the false teaching of the so-called apostles that were self-acclaimed deceivers. 
The doctrine of resurrection was on the rocks. And all of these concerns were in the hopper and in the back of Paul's mind. And as you can imagine, kept him late, up late many a night, I am sure, as he anguished over the state of the church in this holdout of paganism. Paul has said in 2 Corinthians 11, Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all all for your upbuilding. Beloved, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, that you may not find me as you wish, and perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, My God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many uh, of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And that's a summary at the close of the book of things that Paul fears rushing into the vacuum of losing the truth of the gospel. Paul had said in a few verses previous in 2 Corinthians 11.1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. I feel a divine jealousy for you. I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion. For if anyone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And there you see some of Paul's anguish. He is doubling down on his initial claim to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the catalog of issues, the baggage within this church, Paul knows full well, will rush back into that void if they do not stand as he does when he says in 13 verse 8, we cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth truth this is how fallow the ground was here in corinth but it's amazing that the sharp tool of the gospel can pierce even when the surface is so hardened by that list i just gave there's a historical record i mentioned to you concurrent with paul's work in corinth and just to give you some added emphasis on how wicked this city was the reason i'm recounting this to you is because I think it can give us encouragement in our day and age when we are growing wicked as well. And I thank Tim for supplying me this illustration this morning in morning prayer. Apparently on the cover of the Star Tribune today, there was a picture of two men in a grossly immoral act on the cover of our newspaper today. We live in a society now that is lining up with the value set of Corinth where all bets are off and the ethics of today are firmly grounded nowhere except on a precipice overlooking hell itself. It would do us well to realize that the fallow ground of American soil is growing harder by the moment as measured by newspaper articles like that one where a returning soldier greets his so-called husband. 
The fallow ground of today's society demands the sharp tools of the unadulterated gospel. Listen to the historical record that was concurrent with Paul's work in Corinth. The soil was so fallow there that the Greek plays commonly portrayed stereotypical Corinthians as either drunks or prostitutes. So when someone said, where are you from? And you said, Corinth, if you were foolish enough not to lie, they would immediately associate you with prostitution and drunkenness. And so even in their cultural forms and entertainment, the sitcoms of their day displayed people of Corinth as slobbering idiots who were wholly given to licentiousness. This city was strategically situated in such a way that it gained much worldly wealth. Commerce was humming. It sat on the isthmus between two bays that served east and west Mediterranean and there were ships that they actually drug across three and a half miles to land in the other port and charged high prices to do it. And so the community thrived off of this kind of economic opportunity. But in, as is often the case, their prosperity, they found themselves wholly given over to the lust of the flesh. And so heathen religions, twelve temples were built, thousands of temple prostitutes and acts of gross worship to the same were endorsed there. That was part of the tourist attraction. Immorality. Human philosophy reigned as a prevailing thought. Paganism was everywhere. And under these conditions, one could hardly breathe. One could hardly breathe if they wanted to stand for righteousness sake. You talk about the suffocating effects of corruption. How in the world could you raise a godly family under such conditions, we might ask? Well, the way you do it is you stand unequivocally on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there was a handful of families that ended up affecting that culture who did exactly that, who understood that the fallow ground as represented by these examples demands the sharp tools of Jesus Christ alone. Every two years in this area, in this region of Greece, they had the Isthmian Games where the so-called god Poseidon was a god of water, sea, horses, and earthquakes. Kind of a diverse collection of things that they worshipped him for, was celebrated. So anyone who was anyone would go to those games and this religious and uh, entertaining scenario would take place. Incidentally, the city was destroyed several times by earthquakes as God's judgment and consequently rebuilt. And you can see the progress, the spiritual progress in the city in the rebuilding campaigns. Later on, as earthquakes destroyed the city, more Christian churches would get built a testimony to the power of the gospel. Corinth was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. As I mentioned, 250,000 people or so. And if these idea, or if this paganism from the enemy all around weren't enough, the struggling church there, the fledgling church there was beat, not, was beat up not just by the cultural ramifications of their, of their lifestyle being so different from the world around them, But the Jews actively opposed the Christians and beat them openly with no repercussions in the public square. And that record is listed for us in Acts 18.17. And perhaps this statement says it best as we summarize the debauchery of this region. To commit fornication in the Greek language was to Corinthianize. The word literally was Corinthiozame, which meant Corinthianized, and it was a euphemism for licentiousness, a euphemism for fornication. 
A Corinthian girl was a synonym for a prostitute. And so now you know a little bit more how fallow the ground was that was penetrated by the sharp tool of the gospel. When Paul was in Corinth, turn with me if you would to Romans chapter 1. When Paul was residing in Corinth, we often forget that he wrote letters to other churches. He would be residing in one city and since he was there, he didn't need to write a letter to that city. So he'd write a, a letter to another city that he didn't have the ability to be at at that particular moment when he heard that there were issues there. When Paul was writing to the Romans, he was residing in Corinth. So he had the context of everything I just described to you around him when he wrote these words in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And listen to this catalog of evils now as we read in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Does this remind you of their so-called God Poseidon, God of water, sea horses, and earthquakes? Therefore God gave them up in verse 24 to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Among, them, among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What were they doing? They were Corinthianizing. And 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do whatever, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And I submit to you the high likelihood that Paul was inspired to paint that picture of culture because of where he was sitting down to write that letter. From our natural thinking, given these conditions, It's so hard for us to imagine any form of Christianity gaining a foothold under these circumstances. Unless, of course, we don't see at least some form of synthesis with the culture. Yet Paul, nevertheless, was determined once again to stand by, to stand on and stand with this church on the basis of the sharp tool of the gospel alone. Preached in its simplicity to the ears of unregenerate man, foolishness that denied them what they would rather hear or see. The Jews were interested in a sign, a demonstration of power. 
Show me what you got that gives you this authority. Paul says, I have only Jesus Christ and the testimony of his finished work on Calvary. The Jews wanted wisdom. Can you explain to me by reasoning alone why I should take what you say as truth? Paul says, I offer you this on Christ's authority alone. And only those who are awakened by the power of the Holy Spirit can be dead to their reasoning as an affirming power and put away their salacious appetite for signs and say, I surrender, not on my terms, but on yours, Christ. Your blood alone is my salvation. They need not look very far for evidence of their own sin. It was all over the place, saturated with immorality. That fallow ground demanded the sharp tool of Christ alone. And so the gospel was preached. And so it penetrated the hearts of a precious few in Corinth that turned the world upside down for the glory of Almighty God. Second point, reformational sufficiency of Scripture. Three lessons in closing from Corinth. Number one, fallow ground demands sharp tools. Number two, the reformational sufficiency of Scripture. Already this church in just a year or two needed a reformation, a rebuilding. Paul speaks of restoring. You know, this work had not been planted very long. Near as we can can tell, maybe A.D. 51 to 57 was the window, the, the possible window between his sending the first letter and sending the next. In that window, there was this evidence of decline. The church had grown weak in many areas, and it needed restoration. We read again in our text in 13.9, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these, these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not, that when I come, I may not have to be severe And my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul was writing words that he trusted to be sufficient in his absence for the building up and the restoration of the church. And I submit to you that those words stand stand as effective and powerful today for providence as they did then for Corinth. We don't have Paul to preach, to appear, to stand before us in the flesh. We don't have Jesus Christ in His incarnate form standing before us today. We have only a weak and foolish vessel, myself, proclaiming to you what the Word already says. But these words that we're reading today are enough, are enough. Reformational sufficiency in Scripture. You could easily see where if Paul was a humanist, he would want to get there as fast as he could and trust that only upon his arrival would things be set straight. Ever been tempted to think, you know, if he, I'm just going to do it so it gets done right. You know, let me just do it for you. These apostles and your faulty you know, attempts at staying strong in the faith are proving Null and void, and just wait. Don't preach anything else until I come. It'd be better to do more harm than good. Paul didn't do that. Instead, he wrote a letter. 
And he trusted the power of these words to somehow be efficacious in his absence to restore and to build up the church. He had a real faith in Scripture's power where he could not be to do the things that he wished he could if he could speak from their pulpit. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul divulges this in the close of his letter to the, se- the second letter to the Corinthians as his reason for writing the restoration and the upbuilding of the church, the reformation, reforming, calling back to the standards, the holy standards of Christ and Him crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended, ruling and reigning. Those things were his reason for writing that they might repair to that standard. And he had an assurance of the power of these words that they will work whether he's there or away, and indeed even after his death. And so these words stand. Secondly, as we mentioned briefly already, there was a sovereign stage for strategic glory that was set up in Corinth. Though Paul himself spent many hours in anguish over the potential for faulty fits and starts and deep failure in this church, as we've read, his concern that in the void of Jesus Christ, quarreling jealousy, quarreling jealousy, anger, or impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality might rush into the void. Nevertheless, if we take a few steps backward and with a providential heaven's eye view, take a look at what was going on here, we find some truths that are here recorded. And this is John Pringle, one of Calvin's, Calvin's able translators who can't resist his own introduction to, to 1 Corinthians as he writes in Calvin's commentary. As the skill of the workman appears... So much the more strikingly when the tools employed by him are few and simple and the materials to be wrought out are hard and unyielding. So the wonders achieved in the first ages of the church through the foolishness of preaching excite so much more our astonishment when we take into view the peculiarly formidable obstacles that opposed its progress in the places that were selected as the scenes of its triumph. The Lord selected Corinth as a scene for the triumph of the gospel, as a backdrop, as a, as a play as it were, so that the chief act of His redemptive glory might prove all the more powerful. I love Spurgeon's analogy. He says sometimes the jeweler chooses a choice piece of black velvet upon which to set his work, his handiwork, his jewels, that the brilliance and resplendence of that cut stone might appear all the more glorious against that black backdrop. And this is very much the case, the social conditions in Corinth. Corinth and its fallow ground its hedonistic lifestyle, its heathenistic religions, its gross immorality were, to our eyes, formidable obstacles that opposed the progress of the gospel, in Pringle's words. Yet nevertheless, in God's providence, He sovereignly selected this city as a scene for one of its greatest triumphs. Praise the Lord. My prayer is that God would sovereignly select our society as the scene 
of one of his greatest triumphs. My prayer is that the newspaper story I referred to earlier would prove to be the black velvet against the backdrop of the resplendency of the treasure and precious blood of Christ that in a fallow ground of our apostasy within this nation we might repent and return to the sharp titanium-tipped plowshare of the gospel that could turn the fallow ground over once again and make it fertile soil for the gospel. Lord, let it be so. I'll post the rest of this commentary for you on the website this week under excerpts. I encourage you to read it all. But let me read one more comment at the close of Pringle's remarks. He says, Yet even in this we have occasion still farther to mark the overruling hand of God in making subservient to good the disorder the Corinthian church having given occasion for exhortations and reproof that are fraught with invaluable instruction to the church of Christ in every successive age. And so we have in Paul's record invaluable instruction for our age because of what was tested there or because of the tests that were there surrounding Paul when he brought the plowshare of Jesus Christ into the fallow ground of Corinth. One more note of reformational sufficiency of Scripture. We've seen under that heading that Paul's reasons and faith in writing were that the mere words of God recorded would have power to transform, redeem, upbuild, and reform even after in his absence. We've also noted that the conditions on the ground were a sovereign stage upon which the stri- God had strategically positioned His glory to shine. But finally we find a relationship between the book of Romans and the book of Corinthians that I find fascinating. In the canon they appear following each other, but it's uncanny that Romans is really a treatment of the gospel as a systematic theology. And First and Second Corinthians are a treatment of the gospel that serve well as a practical theology. Now you'll note in Paul's epistolary construction, that is, the way he shapes his letters, his gospel letters to the churches, there's a construction there. He invariably begins, for instance, in Ephesians, with the power, the 283-word sentence proclaiming the glories of doctrine, the immovable foundations of salvation, the predestinating power of the Almighty God. He establishes that ground, and then he says in chapter 3, Therefore, this is how you live. Walk in a manner worthy of your call. That's Paul's basic epistolary construction. Systematic theology preceding practical theology. A declaration of the ground of the doctrine and then a call to apply yourself accordingly. It's so interesting that in Romans we find that systematic, methodic treatment of the gospel and then we have in the Corinthian letters it being put to, in some ways, the ultimate test. And the two, the three books, I should say, go hand in hand to give us a very strong and comprehensive record of the authority and the truth on the ground of the gospel, and also the practical effects and the day-to-day application of the gospel. One more note along these lines. This pattern is not unique to Paul. It's also followed in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments are listed 
in this form, thou shalt or thou shalt not. In legal language, that's called apodictic language. That means it's necessary truth. It's absolute. It's the starting point. The Ten Commandments are the apodictic, the necessary truths. But the rest of the laws, the 620 or so that follow, are the case laws. They're the examples. They're the practical theology. In law terms, this is called casuistic law or case law. And so we have it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, in the shape of Scripture, we have the sovereign sufficiency of Scripture to be a reformational juggernaut when the church loses its way by giving us systematic theology and practical theology. I submit to you, if conditions in Corinth hadn't been what they were, we wouldn't have the richness of this record. But we do, and it gives glory to God and His sovereign hand and the record of Scripture and the shape of Scripture, and it is just an indispensable reality for us today as we find ourselves in deep and dire need of reformation. Final point in this message. Unity is contingent, not prior. Unity is contingent, not prior. Three lessons in closing from Corinth. Fellow ground demands sharp tools. There's reformational sufficiency in Scripture. Number three, unity is contingent, not prior. This builds on the point I was just making in the shape of Paul's epistles where he doesn't issue a call to unity until he's established what is prior to unity, which is the authority and the truth claims of the gospel. Notice that this is the shape that 2 Corinthians takes as well. He has said, as we read again in verse 8, we cannot do anything except against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Now he does pray for their restoration. He does seek their upbuilding. That's what he would prefer to use his authority doing. This is the hope and prayer his words would accomplish. And then he follows that with verse 11 by saying in his final remarks, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now once Paul has addressed and corrected the catalog of issues, the gross immorality, the confusion as to God's covenants, the idolatrous tendencies, the pagan immorality, the temptation to synthesize, that is to compromise with the culture around them, the misused and out-of-order gifts and callings within the church, the false teachings of resurrection and all of those things attending the way of this church. Once Paul has set all of those right, he can say wholeheartedly the following, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And notice, unity is contingent on repentance according to the standard of truth. Because there's no way you could uphold Scripture and agree with a brother who is saying that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. 
There's no way that you could agree and live in peace with your neighbor so long as they're in an open, immoral, incestuous relationship, gross immorality in the church. There's no way that love and peace could continue between them if they were constantly reaching out and paying with their money and granting uh, an olive branch to false apostles who were preaching another gospel. No peace, no love could be made with such parties. Paul had said, I believe in 1 Corinthians 11, that there must necessarily be factions among you, that is, distinctions or differences, before the truth's sake. That is, if someone's preaching heresy, they must be considered outside of the camp which stands on Jesus Christ alone. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And so someone caught in unrepentant and gross immorality, they themselves had to be put outside of the communion until such time as they showed repentance and then that privilege of fellowship was granted again. All this to say that unity is contingent on truth. This is such a strong and appropriate, relevant message for us today. Many, many church models today seek to have unity first and truth second. Can we find common ground with the world? We are so preoccupied with showing the world nothing but love, regardless of their condition, that if we were to obey every piece of advice that comes across the popular Christian wire, it's a wonder if anyone would know what sin was anymore. I'm not saying that we don't have common ground in as far as we are all sinners. But when we proclaim the holiness of God, we do not cast a tent of holiness so broad that the unrepentant sinner feels comfortable underneath. Is that what happened in the tabernacle of old? Is that what happened in conditions of God's favor represented by the temple culture? Is that what happened at Mount Sinai? Is that what happens in the communion of true believers? No. The holiness of God is upheld in our unity. And there is not to be mixture where wanton sin and dumbing down of the standards and grading on the curve and a ridiculous sense of corruption and downward spiral of immorality is maintained within the church. We are to have indefinite patience in our sanctification process with one another. But we are to fight vigilantly against the enemies of our soul and the enemies of the church that would seek to justify culturally things that God says are absolutely sin. Unity in Christ's redemptive work alone would be the sharp plowshare, the titanium-tipped tool that could stir up the fallow ground of this city, of this area. There were many things the Corinthians otherwise had in common. Think of the economic opportunities everyone in that area could have Partaken in, think of the religious culture, their pagan history, the games and entertainment I mentioned, the pinnacles, you know, the draw for tourism, the socioeconomic conditions, the status of their neighbors, their relative wealth and affluence, their affiliation with Paul or Apollos. Paul had said all the way back in 1 Corinthians that people were standing on false things for unity. He said in 1 Corinthians 1.12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I think I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And there you have it. The cross of Christ is the standard, and unity is contingent upon it. Unity is not contingent on the personality of the person who bears the name of Christ. Not even Paul, not even Paulos, not even Cephas. Recently, you may have followed some controversy. Uh, they happen all the time with this, within these so-called megachurch models. And there's one that's brewing lately. And some points are well taken. One point that I found in my digging trying to figure out, Lord, what's the state of your church in America, was particularly troubling. A church, I'm told, when I'm referring to, has a coloring book in their nursery. You open up that coloring book and you turn to a page and there's a portrait of the pastor of that church as a coloring book. And underneath that picture, see if I can find the direct quote so I can illustrate to you where the church can easily go wrong. Underneath that picture are these words, We are united under the visionary. This church is built upon the vision God gave pastor so-and-so. We will protect our unity in supporting his vision. You see the error there? That absolutely flies in the face of 1 and 2 Corinthians. But what's the principal problem? The principal problem is they think Unity is prior, and truth is second. And you can build unity on a person, a a, a fallible preacher today. Paul was not willing to stand in that place, although he defended his apostolic authority. Peter was not willing to be a coloring book page in the children's papyruses, papyri, of that day. Neither was Apollos. Why? Because they knew to stand in the place of Christ alone as the figure and the fountain of unity would be to rob the church of its power and grounding, to rob the church of its glory. And it was high treason against King Jesus. And Jesus Christ, when He comes in wrath and judgment, if repentance is not forthcoming, will destroy churches, will destroy churches that are based on that ground. He is too jealous for His glory to let that kind of affirmation stand. Repentance needs to come. As we bring this message to a close and transition to communion, I would remind you, and once again, that the titanium plowshare, if you will, is Christ alone. And Christ alone breaks through the fallow heart And broke through the fallow heart of every brother and sister of Jesus Christ in this room. Community or communion is a celebration of unity that upholds Jesus Christ alone and his broken body and shed blood as what we have in common. 1 Corinthians 10 told us. That just as all passed under the same cloud and through the same body of water, 
so all in Jesus Christ experience the same act of redemption in Jesus Christ. And when we partake in that one loaf, it is a symbol of that very fact, communion reminding us that the binding power between us and this little fellowship here is in truth alone. And let me tell you, if we are standing where Paul stood, we may be one-tenth of one percent of the greater culture around us, but that plowshare sharpened will be more effective over time generationally than any compromise could ever yield. My favorite illustration to demonstrate unity came recently at a funeral I did, and I asked the widow after the funeral, I said, did the relationships in recent days change for you? How were you affected by this? Did you find your family coming together? She said, oh, if you only knew. Ten calls a day sometimes. People I had forgotten their names. People making calls from the Middle East. People booking plane tickets to fly from the other side of the continent just to make it for her husband's funeral. Well, certainly before this time, there had been issues, geography, practical things, and maybe even sins that had kept the family out of fellowship. But it was a funeral that brought them together. They were reminded that the petty differences and the sin that they would otherwise hang on to was nothing but a shadow in the light of this event. And it should be let go and forgotten, left aside. And what was more important now was honoring the death of this person. I was able to tell this woman later who does not have a church, don't settle on a church until you find one where the people gather because of the unifying power of a funeral, the funeral of Jesus Christ our Lord. Where people bind together in communion because of that death and what it meant for them as family members one to another. And so when we celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Christ, we have exactly that reminder. Because of the death of Jesus Christ our Lord, we have a unity in this place. Bow your head in prayer with me if you would. O Heavenly Father, in light of your clear scripture that cuts through the fog of our sin and misunderstanding, I pray that we would repent if we find anything, Lord, inside ourselves that we've resorted to for hope and for security and for fellowship that isn't the titanium plowshare of Christ alone. We thank you for the power of your scriptural, scriptures and the reformational sufficiency to bring repentance even to this church, even today. We thank you that though we live in a culture that gives us common ground to some degree with Corinth, that you have given us sufficient armaments and tools to till it for your name's sake. We thank you that our unity is contingent upon your death. And finally, we thank you that you have instituted this celebration for us to be reminded of that very fact this morning. Lord, I pray if there are any in the room today who do not know the first thing about union in Christ because they have not given their lives holy to you, and surrendered to Jesus Christ alone, that they might repent and bow the knee. And for those of us who find ourselves, Father, fighting the good fight, I pray that we would leave this place encouraged and emboldened, that sometimes you choose the darkest hour to shine the brightest through the least likely who stand on Christ alone.
It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.